Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Jerome Glenn. Jerome Glenn is the co-founder of the Millennium Project in 1996, and he is the CEO of it. He has over 40 years of futures research experience working for governments, international organisations, and private industry. Jerome invented the futures wheel, and he has published over 100 future-orientated articles in various publications, including Foresight, Futures, Technological Forecasting, Futures Research Quarterly, and The Futurist. Jerome has a BA in philosophy from the American University and an MA in teaching social science, futuristics, from the Antioch Graduate School of Education. He has an honorary professorship and doctor's degree from two universities in South America, and he is a leading boomerang stuntman. Welcome to FuturePod, Jerome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great to have you here. So question one, Jerome, what is the Jerome Glenn story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I was minding my own business, working on a master's degree at Antioch Graduate School, the first uh, graduate school of Antioch, and Antioch in the United States is considered to be one of the more avant-garde universities, and so we're supposed <laughs> to be avant-garde, but with an attaché case, so to speak. And the head of the school, the university, said, uh, they're kind of teaching a course in the future, and I went, what? You're going to take a course in the future for, for God's sake. You've got some serious stuff in this world to deal with. He said, well, you know, give it a try. Take a look. And so I did. And simultaneously, as synchronicity would have it, uh, the state of Vermont, where I was, decided it wanted to invent the future of education. Ah. And so they wanted one teacher, one principal, one this, one that. So I was the one graduate student. And Letter said that you know, we're going to meet at this fancy ski lodge. Well, you know, poor graduate students. <laughs> the answer is yes to a fancy Sounds ski lodge. Good. You know, all expenses paid, all that sort of thing. Hell yes. And then a box showed up, mailed to my place, full of Xeroxes from people like Herman Kahn and Alvin Toffler and Bucky Fuller, who I had never heard about before. And three hours later, I got up from where I was sitting, and I went, wow, that stuff really captured me. And so the Inventing the Future of Education for Vermont group met every two weeks or three quarters of a year where we learned methods and applied them uh, to the state. And along the way, it dawned on me that these futures methods were simply condensing a lot of information in a very useful way to make a decision about today. So I said, well, heck, teachers should know this. This, this, this you know, classrooms, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, we have so much information overload, so how do you distill it to, to usefulness, you know? And so I started to take the futures methods and translate them into teaching techniques for Example, uh, take cross-impact analysis where you take item one and how does it influence item two, right? So you have a whole matrix of 10 items on 10, you know, on each other, how they would influence each other. Also, okay, let's say you're teaching biology and you could list all of the biological systems down one column, you know, respiratory system, skeletal system, nervous, etc., down one column. And then across the top, you repeat the same name, same systems, and then you have this little grid. So you say, how can the respiratory system influence the circulatory system, positive or negative? How can the respiratory system influence the endocrine system, positive or negative? And on one chart, you got the interdependency of human body. And I thought that was very cool. And the futures will came out of that activity as well as a way of getting this primary and secondary consequences very simply laid out for for children. And originally, when I got into the University of Massachusetts after my master's, because the University of Massachusetts was the first doctoral program 
far as we know, on futures research. And there's five of us there. I, I was lazy. The head of the, uh, filled out the application. His wife signed it. Because I, I, I was supposed to be the, the, the wild, far-out guy from Antioch at that time. I was given sort of a, the ability to come there once a week. It became clear to me that this is not only a future of education, which is the original focus, but also the future in the classroom. So I developed what was called futures curriculum development, and I think I was the first person to use the term futuring, although Ed Cornish never quite acknowledged that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was back in 1970, this is 1970, 71 timeframe, and there's a magazine called Instructor. I took all these techniques, made them really simple, and put them in or for elementary school kids, why? Because when I was at the University of Massachusetts, the program there said, well, this is cool for graduate students, but forget undergraduate students. I said, are you kidding me? Elementary kids should do this stuff. Daycare, it's a way of thinking. It's not, you know, it's just a way of thinking, that's all. And so uh, the Futures Wheel was originally used with elementary kids. So in the early days, people thought of that as like elementary school stuff. <laughs> it took me a while to say, no, no, adults can do this too, you know. And then uh, I broke up with my girlfriend, so I went back to Washington where I had last been, and I was offered a nice job with Barbara Hubbard and the Committee for the Future to run their SINCON programs. And then I worked, uh, started my own think tank called the Future Options Room for a while, and then I was consulting for different futures think tanks in Pleasure of working with both Herman Kahn and Barbara Hubbard and Timothy Leary and Ted Gordon now with the, the Millennium Project. So the Millennium Project started, as you said, uh, 1957. Uh, after a three-year feasibility study, I had gotten—I I was running out of money along the way at one point, and so I said, the next phone call. I was writing a book called Future Mind at the time, and I didn't slow down. So I said, the next phone call, the answer will be yes, and I'll ask what the job is next. Because I was down to a small amount of change in my pocket. The call was from the United Nations University. Oh, okay. I said, well, that's cool. I mean, I would much rather have on my book cover jacket United Nations University than local, you know, North North Virginia Community College or something like this. That was a liaison between UN University headquarters in Tokyo and the United States. So the Millennium Project was created underneath that as a gift from our previous millennium to the next millennium, as a way for us to think together in an organized way. It meandered through different parts of the UN University during the feasibility study, and it looked like it was going to be difficult to be very flexible, as futurists tend to be. And the UN University within the UN system is not necessarily quite as flexible. So we eventually went independent. Uh, we didn't fully go independent until about 2009. Since then, we've been independent. It was very important for us to have started under the United Nations because, as as you know, we are in as as much involved in Iran as we are in Israel, and having that pan species approach uh, would be very hard if we started in just Washington D.C. or just in Tokyo or somewhere else. But having it coming out of the U.S. system, uh, it allowed me to have access to countries and people that I would not have had otherwise. So we've been doing futures research uh, since then. We've had these nodes, 67 nodes around the world, which are sort of an input-output device for global local so that each of these nodes pick who that works on the study. Because I don't know who's the, who knows the most they do. And so it's a participatory system large-scale participatory system, which I would put a little note uh, there, is that futures research in the early days, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was very much a closely held thing. A think tank did proprietary stuff or classified stuff. Outside people need not apply, <laughs> so to speak. Whereas I give the credit to Barbara Hubbard, and the Committee for the Future in the early 1970s for opening up the futures research to the public. I would say she did that more than anybody else in the future. 
prior to her, there wasn't any public involvement. But the SINCON did do that, and, uh, and, and from then on in, today, it's just a normal thing to do a Delphi or some other process that involves a, a larger public, uh, a, a larger experts into what you're doing. For the listeners, can you just kind of quickly give a snapshot of the the scope and reach of the Millennium Project at the moment? How many, how far, that kind of thing? We have uh, 67 nodes around the world. Uh, and when I use the word node, I mean a small group of individuals and institutions, some from government, uh, some from business, some from academia, some from NGOs, some from international organizations, that identify the leading thoughts, ideas, people in their country and contribute that to the global and then organize the global thing. We give it back to each of these nodes and they translate it into what languages and they do workshops and trainings and publications and so forth. So think of a global local network of these, these nodes around the world as the main superstructure. We've done, I think, about 65 or so futures research studies so far, which is quite a phenomenal record so far. Everything from the future of ethics to, as I mentioned before, the nanotech sort of stuff before we started. And then we also have the largest selection of methods. It's uh, 37 different methods. It's 39 chapters because that's an introductory chapter and a conclusion chapter. But different methods, there are 37 different methods. And like scenarios is just one of the methods. And uh, these are internationally peer-reviewed, uh, and they're used widely by universities around the world. Uh, and then we also have an online collective intelligence system called the Global Futures Intelligence System, which brings all of the stuff that we've got together into an online integrated platform. We think it is the most integrated system of future stuff that exists. Clearly, Wikipedia is far larger <laughs> But that's not, but that's not providing coherence. It's not its job. You know, it's just like an encyclopedia. It doesn't provide you coherence. Whereas what we do with the 15 global challenges is an overview of global change. And then each of the challenges have got a menu structured in a certain way. And you can actually see how one thing fits into another. So it's an ongoing, evolving brain, so to speak, on the future that people can comment on anything along the way. And we have inter- internships. Um, and these nodes also initiate stuff all the time. So it's a leader full system. So a node can be in charge of the whole project on one of their initiatives, so to speak. So think of it as a, an, on, an ongoing orchestration <laughs> where we don't ask everybody to be a violin or a trumpet. <laughs> everybody can be the different things that they are, but they can draw on the whole orchestra. Uh, and, and, but it's a voluntary too, so not everybody's got to know. Great. Thanks, John. Question two, the one where I encourage the guest to talk to the listeners and explain to the listeners about a a framework or a method or an approach that the guest thinks is central to how they kind of do futures work or think about the future. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? At one point, I was leaning back, scratching my head, trying to look at the whole field and say, what, <laughs> what's missing here? And what hit me was that we've got this notion of called prejudice. And I don't mean race prejudice or sex prejudice, but the concept of prejudging the future. You like red hats, therefore you're this way. Uh, or you like that kind of food, therefore you're that way. You know, the, the prejudice. Futurists, by, by their nature, tries to open up the mind, not close it down to a particular prejudice. And yet, we've got prejudice just blocking the future all over the place. I see it as a primary impediment to futures research. It's, it's, it's a generic prejudice. But I said, okay, is there a prejudice that's been around all times in all cultures if we can bust that up, then maybe we can open up the future. So I thought, I thought, I thought, and concluded it was the prejudice between the technocrat and the mystic. Now, when I use the word mystic, I'm being a little more precise. Uh, I don't mean any particular occult or a particular metaphysical system. 
What I mean is, uh, a, a mystic to me is one who's experienced the universe in some sense of divine hold and some some way beyond the understanding, the mystery, so to speak, and sort of you know, delights in that whole and wants to share consciousness as a strategy for change. The technocrat, on the other hand, says, baloney, <laughs> no, 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 you make a tool and you have technical knowledge. That's what makes the change. Don't worry about this consciousness raising stuff. Yeah. Well, both sides of the house are prejudiced against the other. They think they're superior to each other. And it's very annoying. And so I wrote this book called Future Mind, Merging the Mystical and Technological in the 21st Century. It's a story, in a sense, of how the mystic and the technocrat could actually get along in education, in defense, in technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we're moving in that direction because we're increasingly taking technology and making it more sentient, so to speak. And we're increasingly taking technology and micro-miniaturizing it in and on our body. So our physical environment becomes more, our built environment becomes more conscious in a sense. And and we become more technologically like in a cyborg, so to speak. But then there's a, there was a, a continuum between the two. One way of thinking about this as a civilization, as a metaphor to a, a piano performance, great piano performances, when interviewed after the performance, often will say, well, it was, it was the music of the composer, the instrument, and my fingers, and the whole thing in my mind all together into one integrated performance. Yeah, that's right. The conscious technology integrates into the performance of a great piano performance, no question about it. What if we could do a civilization like this, the performance of civilization, and because we are integrated consciousness and technology? Like, for example, at this moment, mm. am I speaking to you or am I speaking to a machine? Right? Well, we say, well, we get over that. I'm speaking to you. <laughs> you know, but, no, that, but that's not true. I mean, there's a machine with a machine with, a, you know, etc. But we just, that all disappears. Now, imagine civilization doing that between the, the consciousness and technology. To me, that could be a disaster, however. All of the things that science fiction writers warn you about. And to me, what makes that future better is how well the mystic and the technocrat can get along. If we can take the attitude of the mystic toward life and the technocrat's knowledge of life of fools and get those two things into a synergy, then I think we've got ourselves a real fabulous future coming up. I'm hearing in that a notion of both while we have this kind of instrumental interest in the world itself in terms of how the world works and therefore we build instrumental tools and processes to understand the world. And then we flip into the kind of more values driven purpose-driven point of, you know, why are things the way they are and how could things be different? And is is it the integration of those two effectively scientific? On one hand, when I was writing Future Mind, I, I did actually, <laughs> believe it or not, count count inventions, right? license inventions and so to see in a trend, to see, you know, are, are we moving, are there more devices that are becoming more sentient, so to speak, behaviorally, not really, really sentient. And after several years of doing that, I said, nah, this is a clear trend. I don't care what anybody has said. This is it's moving in that direction. I mean, imagine you invented a thing, no matter what the thing is. Can you talk to it? Can it talk to you? Uh, it's just like little children. You give them a book, and if they can't click mm -hmm. on something on the book, they think there's something wrong with the book. <laughs> so on one hand, I think that the trend is moving toward conscious technology. On the other hand, there's no guarantee it's going to go in a good way at all. In a book, Future Mind, I explain negative scenarios in there, how they go wrong. But then the normative stuff's got to come in with the technical mystic getting along. And that will be more the normative layer on top of that. One of the ways that uh, I sometimes talk about this is we're all part mystic or technical anyway. We tend to be more of one than the other. And so, you know, the Gestalt psychology is an example. You have two chairs, you know, you sit in one chair and you talk to your other self, the other chair, you go back and forth. So I've done these things where, like, you know, talk to your mystic, pretend that you're a, a mystic, and then you're trying to talk to the empty chair over there, and that's your technocratic self. And you explain everything and complain and all that. Then jump up and go to the other side and be the other one and talk to your mystic self and go back and forth. And I've done this in psychology conferences, and you see people actually healing, in a sense, 
their internal prejudices and conflicts that we all have. There's a notion that we feel conflicted by one as opposed to the other, and really the point of it is to hold the conflict and try and find the best resolution of the conflict that we feel between the two chairs. And to think of the yin-yang. Yin-yang gives you understanding, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. So like the third thing, the act, is the act of the resolution. I'm suggesting that conscious technology uh, is an act to make the contradiction uh, and the prejudice start to go away. If you can get rid, you can get the technocrats and mystics to get along. There's a whole lot of other prejudices that are going to go along the way. Bringing spirit to something that is inanimate, if you want to use that kind of difference, is of course to some extent doing God's work. Clearly, conscious technology is touching on some really deep and profound values that humans share about what is it to be alive and who has the power to create life. Yeah, and where you begin and where I end in this conversation is sort of clear, but it's still a little fuzzy. Imagine that individual objects have multi-communication capabilities simultaneously. You know, instead of, let's say, a Zoom meeting of 25 people, imagine that you have a lawnmower you're out there. In that lawnmower, you've got 25, 30 people that you're dealing with simultaneously on that, on that lawnmower. Well, is that a conversation to science? Is it a lawnmower? Is it, I mean, it's, 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 imagine that the physical things and the medium of consciousness through which it goes is so rich that the distinctions that we make today will seem doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Mm. One of the things that gets clear is this get into advanced new product development. You obviously you want to talk about the physical device and the chemistry and physics and engineering of making the device. But at the same time increasingly you're seeing like, okay, how does that affect the user's mind? Because the mind is making the decision to buy and keep it. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, psychology and philosophy of mind and all this sort of stuff is getting involved in new product development. So, I mean, it, it, it is a, the, the direction is engaged. Maybe the important point is that the report is, is the ethics of the whole issue, how well the mystical We can do this in a very bad way. Yes, it's, it's when we're acting on something that we start to see what our ethics are. Up until then, we don't know what our ethics are, but once we choose something or we fail to choose something, we've made an ethical decision. Yeah. Do you make a tool that enhances consciousness? And with your enhanced consciousness, are you improving the tool? Mm. Cool. Thanks, Jerome. question, the one where I ask, as Jerome looks out into the emerging futures around him, what are the things that you're seeing? What are the things that are getting your attention? What are the things that are getting you excited? What are the things that are possibly even getting you concerned? And how do you physically and emotionally and psychologically operate with the emerging futures around you? One of the ways the Millennium Project decides what studies to do is we run a Delphi among all of our nodes around the world. And one that had come up a couple of years ago was uh, anticipatory governance. How do you do anticipatory governance? Because all the governance systems we've had asked uh, was after there was a thing created that had to be governed. Hmm. But if the rate of change is going fast, then we've got to get ahead of this conversation. <laughs> this is going to be pretty hard to play catch-up ball with an accelerating world. Uh, we didn't want to do it in abstract. We decided, well, what needs to be governed that's not there yet? That would be a big mistake if we didn't have anticipatory governance. And our answer was artificial general intelligence. Now, today we have artificial narrow intelligence, of course. Uh, it diagnoses cancer, uh, doesn't drive a car. <laughs> the thing that drives a car doesn't diagnose cancer. But they are machine learning, they get smarter and smarter and smarter, but in their category, in their narrow category. Artificial general intelligence we don't have yet, 
as far as we know. And we may never have, because it's very di- complex, very difficult. We're not for sure we'll have it. But it's likely we will, and therefore, as the friendly neighborhood futures, we should take it seriously. Uh, some people think that artificial general intelligence could occur as early as 10 to 15 years. By, by general intelligence, I mean like us in the sense that we can draw on a whole bunch of methods uh, and approaches to address a novel problem. Whereas narrow intelligence says, drive the car, diagnose the, the cancer. It's, it's not a novel problem. So general intelligence is a, a different order altogether from narrow intelligence. And people talk about artificial intelligence as if these two things are mixed together. And it's a terrible mistake. It's sort of like saying the fax machine is, is part of the IT world and the Internet is part of the IT world. That's a true statement, but it's very misleading. They're really different. And is, is that's the order of difference between narrow intelligence in general. Now, the reason you hear some panicking going on with Elon Musk and the rest of these is because not of narrow, not of general, but because of superintelligence. Superintelligence is general intelligence that sets its own goals independent of us. Now, so if we don't get the initial conditions right for artificial general intelligence, then how it evolves into superintelligence could be the, 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 the nightmares of science fiction. So it's important to, to panic now because if it's going to take 10 years to make international agreements and standards and, and AI systems to audit these things and also, and it's, it's a really a lot of, a lot of, a lot of complexity to get things that you it's, it's reasonable to assume it'll take 10 years to put anything in place. And if AI general might start as early as 10 years, then that's why we have to start right now. We're at the moment reading our little eyeballs off on what everybody else has done about government so far, but mostly what people are talking about is what values and principles uh, a government system should have, but they're not really talking about the mechanism, how you actually get it done. And that's what we want to start working on. We also see beginning of anticipatory governance regarding genetic engineering? Yes and no. I remember Boston had actually banned some genetic engineering activity, but it was already there. Hmm. Right? I mean, yes, that's probably the best other example that you could give because not a whole lot had been done yet, but some stuff had been done. By the way, related to that, if your listeners have a sense of this, you never really heard much in any complaints in any country in the world against the genome project. No. Why? Because in the very beginning, they said, look, we've got so much money to do the research, and here's a certain percentage of that money for public understanding and education. The public was brought along each step of the way. And to my knowledge, that is the only technology where that has ever been done. Interesting. Usually what happens, you do the research, you come up with a conclusion, and you tell the public, buy it. <laughs> you know? And the public says, well, wait a minute, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. If you think of the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. Now, the Manhattan Project was a scientific project, a collaborative project within very, very narrow constraints yeah. in a very unusual world. Yeah. And yet we know by the examination of a lot of what people have then said post that and the particular, you know, the biographies of the scientists involved, there are a lot of people that were very, very concerned about what they were doing. The fact yeah. that they were actually, that you know, they were heading down a path that they felt they had no choice. They were making an ethical choice about by doing this, are we doing something better or worse than if we don't do it? Well, there was a compromise that was done by George Cowan and some other guys. And they said, Instead of just dropping the thing on Japan, why don't we invite them to see it drop somewhere in the Pacific? Mm. And the Pentagon said, no. Mm. But the scientists themselves, you know, said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we don't, the whole purpose is to end the war. And if they can see how horrible this is, maybe that'll end the war and you don't have to drop it on people. So in all fairness to the scientists, they, they did make a try. I mean, there was the pugwash process that happened yeah. once the genie was out of the bottle, to use Oppenheim's term. Yeah. And pugwash tried to some extent, the way I would read pugwash was pugwash tried to put the governor's process in place after they'd done it. Well, we ended up with uh, 
two governing systems. We do have the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which has done, a, 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 in my judgment, a very good job of standards, and nuclear missile treaties, a series of treaties with the so, with then Soviet Union and now coming up with Russia. But they were mostly after the fact. But thank God they did something. <laughs> So we can do it after the event when there's enough commitment to it. What are we seeing regarding climate and climate change and what seems to be the inability of the world to even just agree to something? Is it just just too hard? Is that a case where we just cannot practice anticipatory governance vis-a-vis carbon in the atmosphere? We had a rather disruptive anomaly with the election of Trump. Paris Agreement was a step in the right direction. Granted, it was a step, not a not a not a run, <laughs> not a conclusion. But there was a momentum in the world that got stopped and stymied to some degree by Trump. Well, he's on the way. He's out now. The very fact that Biden has picked John Kerry to be the head implementation person on climate change activities, in the United States and international relations tells me that we're back in the game in a serious way, not in a token way, because who was the negotiator from the United States side on the Paris Agreement? Who was it there at the shaking of hands at the end? It was John Kerry. So it's, to my view, uh, is we had this steps back, uh, and uh, those steps now have been sidestepped, and we will move forward. Okay. I mean, just my observation looking from the outside, I, to me, I saw momentum starting to get out of the machine even even post Kyoto, even post Rio, where you know we started to see a number of countries, I live in one, yeah. that has been backsliding where they can and been allowed to backslide, so to speak. Well I know key phrase, been allowed. Not to push the US so much, but it's the big economy and all that sort of stuff. If the US doesn't have serious leadership, it's reasonable for a lot of other countries. Well, why the hell should I risk? Yeah, true, true. You know, if the, if the biggest polluter and the, and China, if, the, if China, what needs to happen is the US and China should have a 10 year Apollo like goal on climate change and they should create together an R&D program other countries can join. And that's deadly serious. And in my judgment, anything less than that is pointless because because China and the United States, the two biggest economies, the two biggest technologies, the two biggest money, the two biggest raison d'etre, that force them together. And that's what the Aussies and British can do. You got to force these, these Americans and force these Chinese, force them together uh, into something. And anything less than that, I, just, I, I get depressed. I wrote about climate change in early 1973. So I've been very aware of this whole situation quite personally for many years. And I am convinced that the goodwill to address these things is all there, but it it does not have the the global leadership of the two main polluters. When we get that leadership, then I think a whole lot of things will fall in real fast. There was that moment I remember when, I think it was Paris, and Obama had stayed away from it. And it was literally, you could see them moving towards the last day of it, and the sense was that Obama was going to come at the end and was going to sit down with whoever was China. It probably was the same guy we've got now. And there was a strong sense that they were going to cut a deal. And I remember they didn't. I remember that when they sat down, they didn't come away with a deal. They didn't come away with that, okay, the two the two big players haven't been able to agree on something. Yep. And that was almost the point at which the air disappeared out of the balloon. Yeah. Well, the carry back in. I think that he will, he will, I think he'll get it done. This is his last hurrah. You either get off your butt and put everything you got into it. It's like karate, like all force to a point. Well, to me, the all force to, to Don Kerry is exactly the right karate move. Good. Thanks, Jerome. Fourth question, the communication question. How do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Well, um, I'm a bit of a situationalist in the sense of who I'm talking to. (laughs) But essentially, one way of explaining it, it's a little bit like a, a doctor in the sense that you are 
coaching the patient. Here's some stuff to improve. There's two approaches, I think, to, to practice the futures. One, you, you, you sort of coach them along the way, and they do the work, so to speak. And the other is, let me tell you what to do. <laughs> and I confess I do a little bit of both. When people ask me, I guess, what I do, uh, I'm trying to think of what I normally say. I guess I say something different all the time, a little bit, so I'll just sort of make it up as I go here along the line, is that we, we certainly believe that forewarned is forearmed. It's better to think ahead than not to think ahead. And people sort of like, you know, intuitively get that. Well, yeah, you got to think ahead. And you say, oh, well, we got all this sort of change going on. Well, then we got to figure out how to organize that in some way that makes sense out of it and then figure out what are our best options. And I said, this is basically what we do, is that we, we chart out future possibilities. I'm not telling you. I, I try to get across that I'm not predicting, but I'm charting a variety of possibilities, and what we should do about that is, is a generic one. How we do this, how they operationalize that in the minor project, as I mentioned before, is that we assess our nodes around the world on what's going on in future stuff, that's not being done. We try to fill the gaps of what's not being done or what's being done badly. Like we did a thing on work and technology. We thought that the scenarios were just terrible, so we ended up doing our own work. And so we, we try to find out what, what's not being done that should be done that's important to be done to improve the future. That's sort of like the framework there. Then when we, and that's identified, whatever act is, and we like any other research project, you read your little eyeballs off <laughs> about everybody else's work. Because there's no, there's no point in doing what many people, you know, I don't want to mention consulting companies' names, but a lot of these people will just feed back the same stuff that everybody else has said. And it's just terribly insulting and wasting it. What we try to do is to say, okay, in that whole field of research that's being done so far, what questions have not been asked that ought to be asked? Or, and or, what questions have been answered badly? And then we make up a questionnaire or a Delphi and then have those questions in the Delphi and collect that, send that out to our nodes around the world and then say, you, who knows the most about this in the business? Who knows the most about this in university? Who knows the most about this in government, et cetera? And then have them fill out the questionnaire and we pull it all together, then feed it back and go back and forth until we end up with either an answers or input to scenarios and then we put these reports out this is more or less how we we operate i want to ask you a question which i was kind of halfway go i want to go sideways here but mm -hmm. sure i want you to talk about the delphi because i actually think i mean i use the delphi a lot and i found the delphi one of the most powerful tools to work with an organization on because it allowed people to slowly change their mind based on what other people were saying was evidence or not evidence and I actually think that a lot of people don't either haven't used Delphi's to really understand how powerful they are. And I'm asking you because I know you use Delphi's a lot, and I think you've got something to say about how Delphi's are a very useful way to explain or let people understand what it is we do. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the advantages of Delphi is that because you're asking someone some assessment of something in the future, it immediately gets them to think about the future. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a sneaky way to get people to think immediately. Let me just back up a little bit. Just is that the reason the Delphi was created was that it wasn't always easy to get an admiral and a general at the Rand Corporation to figure out to collaborate because some of these people figure they they know everything. <laughs> they got to listen to somebody else for it. <laughs> you can sometimes have a junior officer who might actually know more or have important insight than the general or admiral. But you got the chain of command and the person feels intimidated, you know. The idea was, and, and also it's hard to get everybody scheduled together to be in the same place at the same time, you know, it's hard. So the, so Delphi then says, okay, what we do, leave people where they are. Uh, they get to answer the questions the way they want to, but they don't have their name associated with it. So the ideas become persuasive and not personalities or rank. Then you take the results of that first one, and then you make a second questionnaire. And what that, the beauty of that is, it forces people to respond to other people's views that they would not normally respond to. And it forces that. And then you can do two, three, four, five rounds, as you know. 
Now, that is, in my judgment, still the best way to do Delphi. However, sometimes people are in a hurry. You know, to do a three-round Delphi, you're looking at least a half a year. So what happens if you get a request from the President Biden says, look, I, you know, next next Tuesday, I've got this meeting on solar energy. I want to know the state of the art. You can't do a three-round Delphi to address that problem. It won't work. So we invented what was called the real-time Delphi. So you can vote early and often. The idea would be that you sign in and give yourself your own password so you can come back and start where you left off. So you don't have to answer all the questions at the same time. But when you come back in a second of time, you can see what other people have said. And they might have commented on your comment with a misunderstanding. So then you can go back into what you said and edit it and say, although people think this, that's not what I meant. I meant this. Enter. And then later somebody else says, that's still not the case because of such and such in Paris. And you say, yeah, but there's this Berlin agreement came next. So, so you're having an organized conversation where, again, the ideas are persuasive. You don't know who you're talking to. It's just the ideas feedbacking system. Now, that is really good to use when you're in a hurry. Trouble is we have not gotten people to come back as much as they have because people are used to the idea of filling out a questionnaire and saying, I'm done. <laughs> but in a real-time Delphi, you're, you're not done. It says, but, you know, by this time, Tuesday morning, whatever is there, we print. So we want to get that pressure that you get your two cents in there before the deadline and double-check stuff between now and the deadline so you can make sure you're represented properly in there. Go to question five, the open question. Is there something that you would like to close and talk about with the listeners? Yeah, uh, self-actualization economy. When we did the uh, future of work and technology study, we did nine Delphi's, by the way. <laughs> nine. That was a very sensitive study. The end, we had three scenarios. Which I recommend to your readers there. Rich and detailed, they're not superficial views of the future. They are actually cause and effect links and the stuff you can chew through. Ten, each, each scenario is uh, 10 pages. It's some really good stuff. Anyway, the third scenario is called If Humans Were Free, the Self-Actualizing Economy. Now, we went out to 2050, and the scenario of self-actualizing economy, the idea was that, that yes, if we do eventually shift from artificial narrow to artificial general intelligence, the impact will be much larger than people realize. Right now, people are only thinking about narrow intelligence, truck drivers being automated by automated out of the truck driving job. General intelligence cuts across the whole damn system. And so we thought it was important to say, let's assume that more new jobs are not created and that not everybody can make a living and that you have a workforce in 2050 of, say, 6 billion people, maybe 9 million, and maybe a billion can be working in well, What do you do about the other 5 billion? Mm. <laughs> That's a lot of folks, folks. The thing that's important about the shift from narrow intelligence to general is that you could go from, say, 10% unemployment to narrow intelligence, and then if general, within a few years, you could go to 50, 60, 70%. And that's just too big, too big a shift. Those friendly neighborhood futures, we have to think ahead. What do you do about that? The idea is to begin to do, as is as beginning to happen now, experiments on universal basic income. The research is pretty clear today that universal basic income, when applied in various areas, in different countries, in different ways, does not necessarily make people lazy. People don't want to be bored for the rest of their life. <laughs> they really want to do something. Most people want to do something. And it can give people the freedom that they don't have to rush into a job. You have a guaranteed income. Take your time to develop what you really want to be. Now, you remember Abraham Maslow, self-actualization, your basic needs being taken care of, and then you got your love and belongingness and so on. Well, in 1980, the majority of the world was in extreme poverty. Now, less than 10% are extreme poverty. A little blip here because of COVID, but we'll get over that blip. It will be seen as a blip 10 years down the road, not now. 
but eventually the idea of having your basic needs being met by most of the world does seem to be inevitable. And you've got a lot of social media and different systems taking care of love and belonging as needs. So eventually, if Maslow's right, then the, then society evolves into self-actualization. So you would make a living out of being you. That concept is completely ridiculous in the past because you had to go somewhere to get a job. That's it. End of conversation. <laughs> but now, if those jobs are not there and you have access to the whole world, by 2050, then how can I connect with what I want to do with others around the whole world? I don't need to have the whole world pay me two cents in order to make a living. I just need enough of it to make a living. Well, out of, by 2050, the 6 billion workforce and 9 billion people well, that's enough for me to make a living out of point zero 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 zero. You know, small. I don't need that very much of a percent. So, for example, right now, I would say I am experiencing the self-actualizing economy. I like talking about the future. I enjoy turning on to people up there's ideas. You didn't even have to pay me to do this. But the idea is that we can make a living out of evolving ourselves and connecting with markets worldwide. So that as more and more people make a living out of being themselves, then they're less inclined to waste time giving the other a hard time. This is a self-actualizing economy. Uh, I figure at best uh, we could get half the world into that by 2050. That's very optimistic. And I think that that's a direction. That more, and, and when, you talk, when you talk to very successful people, what do they tell you? I followed my passion. Everybody says that. I followed my passion. They were in self-actualizing economy. What did you do? I did what turned me on. I didn't have a dumbass job with an employer that doesn't like me, and I got a horrible commute, and I got all these people I'm computing with, and I don't want to be in the same car. That's a horrible way to spend your life. You know, between birth and death, why not find out who you are? Well, now we have a way of beginning to do that and make a living at it that we did not have because we didn't have global economies and global communication systems to make and enable a self-actualizing economy. Does the self-actualizing economy, has we moved beyond the notion of consumer consumption economies and, and you know, people, if you like, working in order to be able to consume? What Henry Ford said, I need to pay my workers a certain amount so they can afford to buy a Ford. Well, you'll, you still have some consumption, but what is it that you're consuming? I mean, for example, most people pay me to consume Ideas, information, not much environmental impact. And increasingly, more and more of the economy is dematerializing in a sense. You know, and, and we're making objects that last a lot longer. So you don't have to keep changing them all the time, except, of course, for this nonsense with your telephone or your computer. <laughs> because given that climate and our whole ecological footprint awareness is probably going to see us see actual legislation and powers being given for people to reduce a footprint and consequence. Yeah, and increase as, as, as moves afoot have uh, either the barcode or some sort of code so that if you're buying a lettuce or you're buying a car or whatever the heck it is you're buying, uh, you're able to find out the entire lineage of that thing. Mm -hmm. Was it produced in a good way uh, or, or not? Uh, what's the environmental impact of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and slowly we're going to have more smart consumers on environmental. Mm. One of the short-term challenges, I would imagine that somehow the 2050, we got our way through the perception of inequality. And I know the basic income idea, and we've seen it with COVID. A lot of people have thrown money at people and there's been a whole lot of interesting. We've actually run a very accelerated research project in the last 12 months about can we give people money and keep economies alive? Yeah, when I started working on that, I, I, I figured you couldn't make it financially sustainable until about 2030. Why? Uh, now, we're in, we're in a certain situation with the pandemic now, which is unique, and that's a, hopefully a short-term deal. We're involved in short-term in the sense of several years. But imagine two bell curves. Your cost of living is going up, 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 up. But because of a lot of the AI and other sorts of things, the per unit cost is going to start going down, 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 down. 
is you're starting to take out and take labor out of production, your price goes down. Uh, so eventually, the cost of medical diagnostics will be very cheap. Right now, it's still very expensive. But when you have good programs, it doesn't cost you a whole lot to run the program the second time, as you know. So eventually, imagine, so in other words, what you have to pay people for guaranteed income will eventually start to fall down around 2030 or so, 2035. And that's one part of the equation that's important. Right now, what you have to pay people is a lot of money. Mm. And that the financial sustainability is not there. But on the other end, the second curve, though, is that the things that are doing this uh, eliminating job are new sources of income, synthetic biology, robotics, the rest. These are new sources of income. So that's a bell curve going up. So at some point, the new income and the cost of living going down, those two things cross over. When they cross over, that's when it starts to look sustainable to me. And we in one of Delphi's, we, we ended up with something like around 10 new income streams that could make the cost of living sustainable. One of the things that I would challenge your listeners to is send me a, a cash flow projection on guaranteed income. I couldn't find it. All these people giving these speeches, Switzerland having the votes, the third of the votes, uh, Finland having a government sponsored activity, Canada doing some stuff, Namibia. But I say, okay, fine. Where's the cash flow projection for sustainability? You know, any business is not going to get a loan from a bank until you say, well, here's the cash flow projection. Where's the money coming in? Where's it going out? Is it sustainable to pay back the loan? Yes or no? That's a normal business question. And I couldn't get anybody to do that for guaranteed income. So our own work ended up having to do some of that. And we concluded by 2030, 2035, Yes, the world can go in that direction, and then the set, then the, the self-actualization economy can begin to take off. Interesting. All right, I am going to wrap this, Jerome. So, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thank you for taking some time out to have a chat. You're welcome. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.